Oh, love praising the Lord. And it was wonderful to sing praises to Jesus Christ together with you this morning. My heart is so full as we worship together with you. I'm going to pray before we come to the reading of God's word. I'm not just going to pray for myself, um, although I'd like you to pray with me and for me that God would um, cause my words to be in accordance with his word and glorify himself in and through them. Uh, I'm also going to pray for um, Tim van Storenbroek, who who is at Glen Haven this morning. I'd appreciate it if you bear in mind the folk at Crystal Park Baptist Church, where I'm from, as they worship right now in the second service, uh, that God would glorify himself in their worship and through the preaching of Craig Daidu, uh, who is serving there. Um, And I'm going to pray for you, because ultimately... What we want is for God to renew our minds and stir our hearts and cause our lives to be transformed. So this isn't just an intellectual exercise. This is a spiritual exercise. And so I'm going to pray that God would do what only God can do. Let's bow our heads and pray to Almighty God. Father God in heaven, As we now come to the reading of your word, as we come to the teaching of your word, Lord, we are humbled because this is the words of Almighty God. Oh, Lord, they are sufficient for all matters of life and godliness. They are without error. They are the words of life. Would you show us Jesus through them so that those who do not believe would be drawn to belief and that those of us, Lord God, who believe might might be edified and built up in your most holy faith. Would you do that, Lord God, that we would praise you down below even as angels sing your praise up above. And would you make us fit for heaven's glories to come? This we pray. In the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, amen. Well, friends, this morning I'm going to read a book. If you turn to the back of your Bible, um, the last book is Revelation. That would be a long book to read. We're not going to read Revelation. We're going to read the book of Jude. Uh, It's the second last book in your Bibles, the book of Jude. It's not a long book. I'm not going to preach the whole book, although the more that I read it, the more that I study it, the more I'm convinced that it it is actually something of a sermon. It feels so uh, connected, but there's so much going on in it. I, 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 I fear I would fail to convey all the meaning to you in one shot. And so this morning, uh, I, we're just going to look at the first two verses, but I am going to read the whole book. So pay careful attention to the reading of God's word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. 
for some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth and they are the ungodly turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ our only master and Lord now I, I want to remind you although you came to know these things once and for all that Jesus saved the people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe and the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling he is kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day likewise Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire in the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. Yet when Michael, the archangel, was disputing with the, with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter slanderous condemnation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they don't understand and what they do understand by instinct like irrational animals by these things they are destroyed woe to them for they have gone the way of Cain have plunged into Balaam's error for profit and have perished in Korah's rebellion these people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts as they eat with you without reverence they are shepherds who look only after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words flattering people for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end time there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the spirit. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others but with fear, hating even the, even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of of his glory without blemish and with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory majesty power and authority before all time now and forever amen just so far in the reading of God's word 
I do see a couple of kids uh, here and there this morning, so I assume either not all of you are out for Sunday school, you don't have Sunday school this morning. Kids, you might hear your parents and grandparents say from time to time that you guys have it too easy. (laughs) You know, I used to go to school barefoot when I was a kid, and that's a true story. Uh, I went to school barefoot. Although it wasn't a hardship at the time, it made playing soccer uh, during breaks and after school and before school all the more easy. And get this, when I went to school, I'd go Mondays to Fridays, just like you guys go, and then we had to go to school on Saturdays as well. And Saturdays, though, weren't a hardship. They were the best of the best. We got to do arts and crafts and learn life skills. Um, in, the, in the afternoons, we'd go and watch the first teams play sport. Um, and the boarding school children would write letters to their moms and their dads during the course of Saturday's uh, day. My father kept the first letter that he received from me when I was in Sabi or standard one. So in kids' language today, that is grade two or grade three. And uh, he sent it. He, he scanned it and WhatsApped it to me this week so that I could read it because I could remember sending it and I, I wanted to use it this morning uh, in the sermon. This is how it went. Pay careful attention to my masterpiece. <laughs> Dear Dad, thank you for the card you sent me. I saw a film on weasels minks, otters, and skunks last night. I stayed up watching Terror of the West. It was hilarious. Lots and lots of love, Mark. Now, I actually, actually remember writing this note. It was 40 years ago, but I, I remember writing the note. I remember the schoolroom that I was in, the blackboard where the word hilarious was written, because I think we had to use a word that the teacher was teaching us in vocab. And whilst my letter might not be a masterpiece, although I think my mom thinks it's a masterpiece, but while my letter might not be a masterpiece, it does make a point, one that I I want you to hear so that we can apply it to the letter that we're reading today. Friends, letters have structure. Even though this was the very first letter that I ever wrote, it has a format. If you're old like me with gray in the beard, or if you're young and at school at the moment, I'm guessing that you're learning similar letter writing techniques even now. This is the format, and I want you to listen carefully to it, because I think you'll see it in my letter. There's a recipient. I I started the letter by saying, dear dad, there was an introduction. I said to my father, thank you for the card that you sent me. There was a body. It was about two movies. I can't remember those movies um, at all for a, for a bar of soap. Um, but there was, a, there was a body. It was about these two films, one of which I thought was hilarious. There's also a closing in this letter. I say lots and lots of love, and there's a signature. I, I write it's from Mark. Well, epistles in the New Testament, that's a, that's a big word, Um, It's a fancy word, but what it really means is a letter. The English word epistle comes from a Greek word which sounds exactly like epistle, and it means letter or message. Epistles have a format. They have an introduction. They identify the writer, his audience, and they've got a greeting in them. After that, they've got a body, uh, what is in the letter, the epistle itself. 
And then they have a conclusion, often with a general blessing in it. There was this wonderful blessing at the end of the book of Jude, a doxology, a benediction, a closing. So take a look at your own Bible uh, for a moment. If it's open in front of you, it, it should be so that you can track along and make sure that what I'm saying is in accordance with God's word. Take a look at your own Bible for a moment and look at the whole book of Jude so that we get a little bit of context for verse 1 and 2. The epistle follows the format that I've just spoken about. Verse 1 and 2 are an introduction. He introduces himself, he identifies his audience, and then he prays for them. Verse 3 all the way to verse 23 cover the body of Jude's letter. There's a call to fight for the faith against false teachers from verse 3 to verse 4. And then there's a description of what these ungodly false teachers that have infiltrated and snuck into the church look like. And that is from verse 5 through to verse 16. And then Jude explains how you to combat against false teachers in verse 17 through to verse 23. And as I said, verse 24 and 25 is the conclusion, a rapturous proclamation of praise to Almighty God. Now this morning, we're just going to look at verse 1 and 2. It's the introduction of this book. And what I'm hoping that you will see is three characteristics of the Christian life. Three characteristics of the Christian life. I want you to see these three characteristics of the Christian life. Number one, that the Christian life is to be an obedient, submissive life. A life lived in obedient submission to Jesus Christ because we are slaves of Christ. And we'll explain that shortly. The second point that I'm hoping that you see from the sermon this morning is that this Christian life is to be a life of confident expectation because we are kept by Jesus Christ. And we will see that in a moment from the text. And the third point that I hope that you see in the text before us this morning from Jude 1 and 2 is that the Christian life is a life of progressive sanctification. Because God saved us for a reason. It's that we might multiply in the graces which flow from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at that first point now. A life of obedient submission. A life of obedient submission. Read with me in your Bibles. It says in Jude chapter 1 verse 1, the first half of verse 1, Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Let me just repeat that so it sinks into our head before God moves it into our hearts and then we can live it in our lives. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. The letter begins by introducing us to a man named Judas. Now, all of our, a couple of people looked up there. Now, all of our English translations read Jude, right? And when we memorize the books of the Bible, the 27 books in the New Testament, we always learn Jude and then Revelation. But you might find it interesting to know this morning that the name of this Bible writer is, in fact, Judas. It's derived from the Hebrew name Yehuda or Judas in Greek, which is what this book was written in. 
And it's actually a very beautiful name. Judas means praise. But translators don't use the name Judas for the same reason we don't use the name Hitler for our sons. We don't want association like that. The name Judas reminds us of who? Judas Iscariot, right? The the traitor, the one who betrayed Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And so the name is translated more often than not into English as Jude. And yet, as Judas introduces himself, he doesn't change his name to Jude. Like uh, Rob, <laughs> uh, Robert to Rob, or like Sibusiso to Spoo. Um, Judas self-identifies as Judas in the original language. And so, whenever possible, I'm going to try and refer to him how he identifies himself as Judas. And the question that you kind of ask as you get to the beginning of verse 1 of the book of Jude is who is this man? Who is Judas? And the answer is given in our text. It says Judas, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now translators have made our job of understanding the authorial intent here a little difficult. Because the word servant translates the Greek word doulos. Okay, so now, now we're learning Greek today, which is pretty amazing. You can actually, you can turn to your neighbor, touch them on the shoulder if you came with your neighbor. If you didn't come with your neighbor, then don't touch them on the shoulder. It's COVID sensitive. Um, but you can turn to your neighbor and say the word doulos. Say doulos. Okay, that's the word of the day. We, we're learning Greek this morning. Uh, the word doulos in other places in the New Testament is translated better as slave. So for example, in Romans chapter 6 verse 6, we read Paul saying, you used to be slaves of sin. And then later in Romans chapter 8 verse 15, he says, you did not receive a spirit of doulos. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Uh, There's a big difference in our English mindset, right, between a slave and a servant. A servant, we use that word all the time. A servant is a free agent who performs tasks for payment. But a slave is under complete obedience. A slave is totally submitted to their master. And as difficult as this idea is of master-slave language today, this is what Judas meant, and this is what the original audience would have understood as he uses this language. Getting the language right here is important to understand the rest of the book, because Judas is about to charge, remember I spoke about the false teachers when we were talking about the whole book, he's about to, excuse me, charge the false teachers Uh, as denying Jesus Christ as their only master and Lord. To deny Jesus, the lordship of Jesus Christ over our lives, friends, is antichrist. Jesus demands to be master and Lord over every area of our lives. He will accept nothing less than obedient submission from those who claim his name. And so we're asking the question, who is Judas? 
And the text actually answers it quite comprehensively for us. Judas, a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, the James that is being spoken about here is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. You might not have known that Jesus had half-brothers, but you can write this reference down, Mark chapter 6, verse 23. Uh, there we are told that Jesus was the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And so we find out here that Judas is the brother of James and James is, and Judas together are half-brothers of Jesus Christ, one of four half-brothers. Together with these brothers, Judas had at first rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In actual fact, Mark reveals that there was a time that Judas thought that, that Jesus had lost his mind. But after Jesus' resurrection, after he had appeared to at least James, his brother, the brothers came to believe. And Paul records that these men became Christian missionaries, taking the good news of the gospel out to foreign lands. Yet when Judas introduces himself in this letter that bears his name, he doesn't identify himself as the brother of Jesus Christ. He identifies himself as the brother of James. Let me tell you why I think he does that. Judas's primary self-identity isn't wrapped up in his association with Jesus Christ by birthright, uh, that he is a half-brother of Jesus. He relates to his older brother first as a slave. His older brother, Judas recognizes, is his divine master and Lord. How do we go about applying the passage so far? Let me ask you a couple of questions. How do you relate to Jesus? Is it a family connection? Are you here today because your husband or your wife brought you to church? Are you here today because your mom or your dad dragged you to church? Friend, listen carefully. You are not a Christian because you were born into a Christian family. You are not a Christian because you attend church regularly. You cannot be a Christian merely by association alone. You can only be a Christian by belief. Christians recognize the holiness of God over their sinful state. They recognize their inability to escape from the domain of sin, from slavery to sin. Christians recognize the danger that they are in because it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment. Christians have looked to the cross where Jesus died and they have recognized that God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for them so that in him they might become the righteousness of God. Friend, do you, do you recognize this? Even right now, even now, do you, do you grasp that God is a holy God? Do you understand something of the sinfulness of your sin? The certainty of judgment to come. The exclusiveness of Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. Do you realize that you are not a Christian because you have not exercised belief? 
Then friend, right now, this moment, do not delay. Repent from your sins and put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. Declare and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Amen. (laughs) Have you believed today? I mean, have you believed today? Are you believing right now? Is this the day of your salvation? Then speak to a pastor. I I saw Isaac in the front, and I think Jabu was at the back. Speak to a pastor or an elder after the service about your confession of faith so that they can celebrate together with you and then begin the process of discipling you toward the image of Jesus Christ. Friend, anchor your self-identity in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Amen? I recognize that not everybody that is here is an unbeliever. Some of you that are here this morning already claim to be Christian. You come to church on Sundays. You sing the songs. (laughs) You bring your Bible. You chalapanzi and mamela to umfundisi. (laughs) You do your one hour of religious observance a week, and then you step straight back into your Monday to Saturday depraved life. Is your Monday to Saturday characterized by sinful livings? And I don't know what your sins are. There's so many people here today that your sins would be very varied. But I do know this. The work of the flesh is obvious. Sexual immorality Moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. And I'm warning you about these things right now. As I've warned you before, Paul says that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Stop being a hypocrite. You can't claim to be a Christian and live like a devil. Consider Judas's self-identity as an obedient, submissive slave to Jesus Christ. Friend, Test yourself. If you are in the faith, examine yourself. And if you come up short, repent, confess your sins from this double life that you are leading. You need, I mean, you really do. You need a mature Christian to hold you accountable. Maybe a Bible study leader or an older Christian who can walk alongside you and disciple you in life. And so speak to a pastor or to an elder after the the service so that they can connect you with someone who can do exactly that. Live your life in obedient submission. That's the first point from the text. Did you hear it? That was verse 1a. This morning we're considering three characteristics of the Christian life. Firstly, it is a life of obedient submission. The second part of verse 1 teaches us that it is a life of confident expectation. Confident expectation. Read with me in your text. It says, Jude, a servant, or Judas, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are the called, 
loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. To those who are the called. This letter continues now by introducing us to the recipients of the letter. And he introduces the recipients of the letter as the called. Now the biblical idea of being called in the New Testament is synonymous with words like the chosen, like the selected, like the elected by God. Judas writes to those who have heard the universal call, the proclamation of the gospel, and have responded to the effectual call, the sovereign call of Almighty God. And friend, even right now, think of that day. It might not be long ago for some of you. It might be decades ago for others. But think of the day that your sins were washed away. The day that you were called out of death and into life. The day when that great transaction took place. The day you were brought out of darkness and brought into the domain of light. I can literally hardly think of the moment of my own salvation without a lump rising in my throat and a tear cresting my eye. <laughs> Think of your day, the day that you heard the universal call of the gospel, the day that you responded to the effectual, sovereign call of God to salvation. That's the day that Judas is pointing his readers to. He wants them to remember and he wants to remind them of the day of their salvation. You see, in a world of false teachers and false teaching, in a world of spiritual warfare and fighting for the faith, in Judas's world, in your and my world, when we remember the day of our salvation, we remember that salvation is of the Lord. It is of God. And the knowledge of that salvation and the knowledge that salvation belongs to the Lord, it emboldens us, it encourages us, it invigorates us, it enhances us, enheartens us. It makes us ready to fight and to contend for the faith that Judas is going to call us to in verse 3. Now, even as you read that, you might be thinking, well, I want to know more about these called. <laughs> I want that described a little bit more. And Judas does that in the text. We ask the question, who are the called? And he responds by saying this, to those who are the called, loved by God the Father. Loved by God the Father. They are those who are loved by God the Father. The sovereign divine effectual call is at first and primarily a loving call and in the text before us that we're reading love here is a verb it's a a doing word and it's in the perfect tense which describes an action as having been completed once and for all in the past those who have been called by God are completely are eternally, are consistently loved by God. A sovereign love that God 
chose to cast upon them before the foundation of the world. A love that they continue to experience even into the present. A love, friends, that those of us who are in Christ will experience into eternity to come. This is a permanent love. This is an infinite love. This is an immutable love. This is a love which could only have as its source the Father heart of God, the divine, the great I am. We ask the question, who are these called? And we get the answer that in the text that they are those who are kept for Jesus Christ. This effectual, sovereign call is a secure call. The word kept here is a verb. It's one of those doing words. And again, it is in the perfect tense. In other words, it was completed in the past as a once-off action. Judas's re- readers are called by God. They are loved by God the Father. And they are kept by God the Son. The language in the original text seems intentionally uh, ambiguous. Different translations, therefore, translate it in different ways. Some say to those who are called and that they are kept in Jesus Christ. Others say they are kept by Jesus Christ. And other translators say they are kept for Jesus Christ. All of these are possible. All are true. This permanent, this infinite, this immutable, this power of God the Son secures us and does this to his own praise and his glory. Jesus keeps his own for his own glory's sake. And so we can have a confident expectation of the future because the future is secured by none other than God the Almighty Son. What are the implications and applications of the second half of verse 1 of the book that Judas wrote? Well, friends, even as you sit here this morning, is there any amongst us that hears the gospel call? Is it as if the Lord himself stands at the door and knocks? How will you escape if you neglect such a great salvation? Surely if he calls, you must respond. How dare you not? How could you not? Is his spirit presently drawing you to himself? Is his spirit presently wooing you to himself? Is he opening your eyes? Is he opening your heart? Is he granting you faith? Is he granting you belief? What must you do? And the answer is this, repent. Now, immediately, do it at once. Aware of your guilt, your sinfulness, your helplessness before a holy God, take hold of God's mercy offered to you through the person of Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his sinless death, his glorious resurrection. Change your attitude towards your sin. Turn from your sin and turn to God and put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and you will live. Not everybody that's sitting here is an unbeliever, and I get that. And so there's application here to young Christians as well. Young Christian, do you understand the overwhelming 
and saturating love of God toward you right now. You have a Father who is in heaven who loves you very, very much. God loves you. As hard as it may be to believe, it is truth. We read in scriptures that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that everyone, and that's you, who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Have you believed on the name of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ? That's good. (laughs) Have you received the glorious hope of eternal life through his death and resurrection? That's good. Your salvation is secure and heaven waits for you. But now do you understand the love that your Father has for you? Friend, receive it. Enjoy it and love him back with it. Do you wonder if God truly loves you? Look to the cross again for proof. On the cross, God demonstrates his own love for you in this, that while you were yet a sinner, Christ dies for you. Your Father in heaven loves you. Saint, for those of you who have gray in your beard or maybe gray in your hair, Do you fear death? We have death all around us at the moment, don't we? Do you fear the judgment that is to come? My friend, there is no need. You never saved yourself. Jesus saved you. He pulled you out of the clutches of hell, out of the grasp of Satan, and he made you fit for heaven's glory. He who saved you will keep you to your journey's end. Rest in him. You are kept in him. Who can separate you from the love of Christ? Can afflictions or distress or persecutions or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I'm persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heart, nor depth, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. This morning we're considering three characteristics of the Christian life. The first characteristic in the first half of verse 1 was that it needs to be a life of obedient submission. And the second characteristic, friends, was it needs to be a life of confident expectation. Obedient submission because we are slaves to Christ. Confident expectation because we are kept by Jesus Christ. The third point this morning is it needs to be a life of progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. We read in verse 2, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This introduction concludes with a prayer. It's a really short prayer, but it is a prayer. Judas lays his heart's desire before God. And this is so pastoral. This is why when, you, when you're prepping to preach this, you can't but help pray for the people that you'll be preaching it to. Because it's a loving prayer which spills out of the text. He wants his readers to grow spiritually. I want you to grow spiritually. This is sanctification language. 
He wants you to grow in Christian virtue. He wants you to grow in Christian holiness. He wants you to progress in the Christian faith. His prayer, the desire of his heart, is that they would abound in all that is spiritual. And he starts, it's kind of surprising in the text, with the word mercy. What does Judas pray for his readers for? Firstly, he prays that they would um, abound and multiply in mercy. Now, mercy and grace in Scripture often go together. The, the good definition of grace is that God gives us that which we, don't, uh, that we uh, uh, do not deserve. He gives us salvation, and He gives us Jesus, and He gives us love, and He gives us grace, and He just heaps all these spiritual blessings on us. A good definition of mercy is that God withholds from us things that we do deserve. And before we come to Christ and put our faith and our trust in Him, we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve the the judgment of God. But for a moment, because God is long-suffering, God withholds the things that we deserve from us. It's God's mercy towards you that He forgives you at all that he withholds the punishment that you justly deserve. It's God's grace toward you that he heaps on you undeserved blessings. Mercy and grace are two sides of the same coin. What does Judas pray for his readers for? He prays that they would be filled and multiply and abound in peace. Now the word peace pictures a binding together of something which was previously separated. Peace is all about tranquility. It's about harmony. It's about security and prosperity and well-being. We who were once separated from God because of our sin at enmity with Him, rebels against Him, at war with Him, we have been reconciled back to Him. There's a false peace in the world that the world pursues, a a man-to-man peace or a false inner spiritual peace that the world pursues but will never find. This peace is with God. It is shalom peace. It is irene peace. This is the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, a peace which can keep our hearts and our minds in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. A peace which God, with God that ends up uh, changing and reflecting in all of our man-to-man relationships. Judas prays for mercy, and Judas prays for peace, and Judas prays for love. Now, we serve a God, we know this, who is love. Love is at the essence of his being. Love here is agape love. This is the self-sacrificing love of God's word. At salvation, God infuses this kind of love, divine love, into us. This is a verby kind of love. It's a, it's a love that looks like something. It's active. It, it works. It is patient and kind. It does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not irritable. It does not keep a record of wrongs. This kind of love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This kind of love never ends. Christian love imparted to us at the point of salvation looks like something. Now, how do we apply verse 2 into our lives? Well, there's a twist in this tale, (laughs) 
You've already received all the mercy and all the peace and all the love that you'll ever need at the point of salvation. So how can you grow in something you already have? Isn't Judas's prayer a little pointless? Shouldn't he be praying for non-Christians who haven't received uh, love and mercy and peace rather than for believers who have received all these blessings and countless more beside? Why does Judas pray that we would grow, that we would increase, that we would multiply in mercy, peace, and love that we already have? It comes down to knowledge and experience. Judas prays that his readers would multiply in their knowledge of the mercy of God, that they would multiply in their knowledge of the peace of God, that they would multiply in their knowledge of the love of God. Because friends, the more you know about God, his person and his work, the more worshipful your disposition towards almighty God will be. And the difference between knowing and something uh, and experiencing something is the difference between looking at a beautiful red apple and taking a bite of it and enjoying its sweet fruit taste. Judas wants his readers to experience it in ever-increasing measure, the mercy, the peace, and the love of God. He wants you to taste and see that the Lord is good and find your joy and your satisfaction in Him. Friends, as we read verse 1 and 2, of the book that Judas wrote, we discover that the Christian life is not a static life. God doesn't save you to leave you where he found you. The Christian life is a life of ongoing growth. It is ever increasing. We grow in our experience of Jesus. We grow in our knowledge of Jesus. We grow in our dependence upon Jesus. We grow in expectance for the soon return of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. We grow in present obedience to Jesus Christ, our Master and our Lord. We grow. As we studied the text this morning, I hope that you have seen and I hope that you will consider And I hope that your minds will be renewed and your hearts will be stirred and your life will be transformed by these truths. The Christian life is a life of obedient submission to Jesus Christ because we are slaves of Jesus. The Christian life is a life of confident expectation because, friends, we are kept by Jesus. And the Christian life is a life of progressive sanctification Because he who started a good work in us will see it through to the day of completion. From one degree of glory to the next until we are fully conformed and transformed into the appearance of Jesus Christ, our great Lord and our Savior. That is my prayer for you this morning, that you would live this life to God's praise and to his glory. Amen. Let's close our eyes and pray to Almighty God. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It is faithful and it is true and it is sufficient for all matters of life and godliness. Lord, as we read this text, we see so many calls on our lives, calls to be obedient to Jesus Christ. Calls, Lord God, to earnestly and confidently uh, look forward to his imminent return and our uh, unification with him. Calls, Lord God, to progress in holiness, sanctification for his own name's sake. We recognize, Lord God, that 
this would be impossible if the Spirit of God was not in us, activating us and moving us and molding us and making us toward the image of Jesus Christ. Oh, please, would you do your work? For those who have not yet placed their faith and their trust in Christ, would you call them to salvation? For those, Lord God, who are in Christ, would you call us, Lord God, to live lives to your praise and to your glory, that we, your people, would reflect our Lord and our Savior until he comes again to a world which desperately needs to hear about him. These things we pray in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.